Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. Today I'm speaking to Julian Faro, the director of a new documentary about the 1964 Olympic gold medal winning Japanese women's volleyball team called Witches of the Orient, the bitchy epithet by which the team were known in the world's media. The team and their disciplinarian coach worked in a textile factory by day and trained rigorously by night, going through drills, gym work, serves, volleys, fitness training and analysing the small details of the sport. It was very much a 21st century training regime for a team of 1960s co-workers. But boy, did it pay dividends. The team remained unbeaten for 258 games across all competitions and in a tense final at the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, won perhaps the greatest prize against tough Soviet opposition in front of a home crowd. Faro's film mixes exquisite archive footage of matches and training with film on Japanese resurgence after the Second World War, ideas of improvement by design and repetition as suggested in footage and an incredible soundtrack from, amongst others, Portishead and Jason Little from Grandaddy. Faro also trains his lens on the old team, now in their 80s and the current day, still fit and able and dining in Kyoto where all their instincts of togetherness hold firm. Witches is a most beautiful, beguiling and unusual documentary and here is its director, Julian Faro. Следите в лица этих японских девушек, самых грозных, самых опасных соперниц наших волейболистов в борьбе за золотые медали. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. And what what an unusual, rich and beautiful film and, and sort of eye-opening film it is in so many ways. I'm going to kick off, I guess, with the, the obvious question. When did you, when were you first beguiled um, and fascinated by the story of this phenomenal volleyball team from Japan? I came across to the witch's story through a, a film, through a footage. Um, actually, I, I'm in charge of a film collection owned by the French Sport Institute in Paris called INSEP. And more than 10 years ago, a um, volleyball trainer came to me at the Cinematheque with two 60 millimeters film. And the, the first one was uh, named Volleyball and was produced by the Japanese Olympic Committee just after the, the Olympic Games of Tokyo in 1964. So I was really stunned and very impressed by the sequence on the Japanese uh, women team because uh, I've never seen before such uh, intensity um, in the training. It was very far from the usual uh, 60s training. <laughs> yeah, you'd normally kind of break for a coffee and a cigarette, right? I mean, halfway through training in the 1960s in most sports. Yeah, right. <laughs> and also those footage were reminded me very swiftly to um, the anime I used to watch when I was a kid. And um, I, I didn't uh, know that there, there was any connection between this anime and a true story. So it was a, a real surprise. And although this anime was really popular in France, no one knew that um, there was a, a true story behind uh, this anime. So I started to, to know more about um, this story and 
the more I knew about uh, them, the, the more my desire to make a film on them increased. Those films you watched at the Cinematheque, I, I suppose originally, which gave you the impetus to make this film, there's such a richness of that archive. And as you say, there's, there's so much detail in how these women trained and the kind of, the, the, I guess the personality of their, of their coach is quite sort of, um, he's not a public figure in any way, but it, it's unusual perhaps to, for there to be such an impetus on the training rather than just on all the, the games that they, they won. So you really, as a filmmaker and as a researcher, can drill down into the, into the core of what made this team so strong, I suppose. Yeah, and maybe uh, that's because I work at the French Sport Institute where people training, and I really like this backstage stories, so mm. to speak. Uh, training is, is where you, you just face the, the reality of the high-level athletes. You feel the pain, you feel the, the cost to be, uh, to be the best. Yeah, and I suppose it's sort of analogous to, to filmmaking as well, Julian. We watch Witches of the Orient, and we are amazed by the skill of the filmmaker and by how he's spliced all these different pieces of film together and, and laid an amazing soundtrack underneath it and over the top of it in certain places as well and strings a great story together. But I suppose it's exactly that. It's, uh, there were a lot of late nights and early mornings in the editing room, um, I suppose. What was your training regime while you were making this, this film? Mm. Yeah, I worked step by step. I do love editing. I need time also. I don't work for any um, broadcasters, so um, it's a, an independent uh, documentary, so I have time. It's very uh, comfortable for, for me to, mm. to work um, as, I, as I want. So, as you mentioned, the, the film is a, um, a multi-layered film, and uh, I choose this uh, kind of, uh, this type of narration because I think the topic, the subject, is really a multi-layered uh, story, and that um, it's a, a mix of um, the Japanese history with the, this time of reconstruction, and uh, it's it was a real collective effort for Japanese, and we have here a team, a volleyball team that work uh, actually for a, a textile uh, factory. And of course, this anime that I already, I already mentioned was inspired by this true story. So there is also this dimension of confusion between reality and fiction. And that's, that's how I, I work. I just uh, want to, let's say, to add confusion to, uh, to the confusion. <laughs> well, it, it's it's a, it's an amazing mixture. Uh, it's, it's a very successful, if unpromising, sounding cocktail, Julian. Confusion times confusion equals something like um, something like understanding, because it is an amazing thing that draws so many different themes. There's there's the theme of um, war and peace and training and performance and the spirit of togetherness as well, which these which these women possess. At the beginning of the film, we, we start around a, a dinner table somewhere in Japan um, in, in the present day, and you've um, assembled most of the, the team together, ladies probably in their 80s now. What was the spirit around that dining room table when, when you, you, you trained your camera on them as, as older women? It looked like the bonds of friendship and a little bit of rivalry were still there. Yeah, I, I was really keen on uh, recreating uh, something, a gathering moment. So uh, we invited um, the players to, to, to share a, a meal. It was a lunch in Kyoto in a, in a beautiful hotel, the Century mm -hmm. Hotel. And um, 
the magic uh, was happening because they, they were laughing, they were kidding to each other and uh, they look like um, you're true, they, they are on the 70s and 80s, but they look like to be on their 20s. Uh, they are like uh, uh, kidding about alcohol and <laughs> it was really uh, enjoyable. And I'll, I think I, I was also very impressed by, by those women. And um, when I have to, to think of this uh, sequence, I have to tell that uh, um, the opening scene of uh, Quentin Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs, um, I was in mind, and they, <laughs> they, lo they really look like Mr. Blue, Mr. White. Mr. Yeah. Pink. <laughs> yeah, they are tough. They are tough guys, uh, if you will. Yeah. They, so uh, maybe our listeners will want to um, watch a double bill of Witches of the, of the Orient and Reservoir Dogs and Julian to get the full, um, the full treatment that you, you designed. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, and so, what was the what was the spirit um, that you? I mean, what was the spirit that you saw around that dining room table in Kyoto, and and the spirit that imbued the team? I mean, it just seemed like a great. It seemed like almost a single organism made up of these very disparate uh, and differently talented players and women. Yeah, because it was a collective story. I really want to uh, to tell uh, the film is uh, the voiceover is made from every. Um, player's uh, testimony and I wanted to, to keep this uh, collective um, spirit. They are all in one, um, one spirit, in one uh, goal and, and so that's how. Um, but maybe I, I have to, to tell you that uh, how I, I came to this idea of um, meeting the players because on, in all my uh, previous film I used to, to work with found footage only and, and mm. write voiceover. But in this, in this case uh, it was um, pretty new because when I read many articles from Western uh, journalists, observers, academics, I was really upset by all these misunderstandings uh, I read and uh, I thought the Westerners uh, mostly uh, looked down on Japanese and they were, uh, they were convinced that this demon coach, that's how they nicknamed the coach, uh, was just mistreating this, um, uh, this victim these women uh, as uh, victims. And I really uh, can't bear it uh, because I knew that they were high-level athletes and the Westerners don't think that um, a group of women could have chosen themselves to, um, to train that hard, to train like men. And they were just denying the freedom of women to act like they want. So that's, that's what pushed me to uh, to meet them and I, uh, I was really keen on giving them the opportunity to tell their story by themselves. Yeah, and, and, and it's there's a very interesting sequence in the film um, that, 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 that speaks to what you're saying now, Julian, about the idea, the sort of demonization of this team, um, you know, using occasionally sort of racial epithets. It was 1964, let's face it. Um, uh, and 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 sort of and sort of national stereotypes as well that these women weren't feminine enough that they weren't almost human enough that they were like robots they were like machines that the the, the sort of relentlessness of the training was something as you say that, that that a woman wouldn't have chosen and that they were being driven to it by their male coach but also that you know that they were 
the style in which they won wasn't somehow correct when simply they were scoring more points than the opposition. Um, you, you, what, 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 how did you illustrate that in the film? Because, it, again, you've got some fantastic archive footage. You've got, you run newspaper um, pages and, and we hear the sort of clacking of a typewriter over the top. There was a, very much a sort of media frenzy about the, these women, wasn't there? Yeah, true. Uh, so I mentioned a quote in the film, this um, awful uh, article uh, by uh, Sports Illustrated. And, and then just after that uh, quote, Tanida-san, one of the players, one of the protagonists of the film, just laughed and, and said, uh, are you uh, agreed with this article? The, our trainer was nicknamed a demon. So um, our laugh speaks for for, for her and, and it's uh, very relevant of, of the of the reality of their relationship. It was not um, uh, something uh, scary. It was not insane. And in this context, you know, nowadays, in a, we have uh, to um, to face so many uh, sordid and, and horrible stories in our newspapers about uh, harassment and sexual abuse in in, in sports. So it was, um, it was really, it is really touchy, this aspect. So we have to be, um, to be aware that sometimes in a, in a specific context, uh, women also has this uh, freedom to, to act uh, as they want. And it was very important in the film. The testimony of the players is uh, very useful and helpful to just uh, face the, the reality and understand that this story, although this, the, the footage are sometimes very impressive and, and because the, the training is really harsh and uh, they, are, they are exhausted, sometimes they cry. So their testimony just uh, proved that they did just uh, follow this trainer. They trust him and he was uh, very kind to, to, to them. They were very close and they, they kept saying to me that they were very grateful to, to him because he... He did a lot and he was also like a father figure because all these players belong to um, the war generation. So they were, the majority of the team were actually fatherless. So um, it was, um, Daimetsu was um, something very important for, for them. I wanted to, to, to just paint a picture of the training regimes because these women worked in a factory all day from eight o'clock in the morning, sort of weaving factory, right? a, a, a textile factory. And then when they left work, they went training. And often until they said, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning, they were having their supper. They could only have their supper at the end of training. Sometimes that was at three o'clock in the morning. And then they were up again at eight to work in the factory again. So when we talk about tough training, it really was something else, wasn't it? You know, if you, if you, if you make sports and, and practice all the time, and you have only sports in your life, sometimes it could be too much for your brain. And I think the, the morning uh, work at the, the factory also can bring you some, something, else, something else. You know, you just uh, work like, um, like, every, uh, like everybody. And, and the trainer, Daimatsu, was also an employee of the, the textile factory. And he was really uh, convinced that the players has to work also because they can't bear the the training only, uh, the, the volleyball only. They lived in the, fa- in the factory. So he was aware that they have also to, um, to live something else to, uh, for their um, horizon. Their mental horizon has to, to be more rich than only volleyball. So 
yes, it could be uh, uh, impressive and, and, and curious to, um, to know that they, they have to train very hard, but uh, they have also to, to work at the same time. But I think it's also um, a, good, uh, a good idea to uh, create a more balanced life, you know, mm -hmm. not only focus on one, on one goal and one thing. Yeah, I mean that 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 idea of the sort of rounded individual and and, and sort of it, it sounds also like um, some of the mental health conversations that are being had at this current Tokyo Olympics in in, in twenty twenty one. That high level athletes have have you know taken their leave of the of the of the tournaments or certain parts of the tournaments because of mental health issues and this idea of mental toughness. That team of women that you saw around this 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 table in Kyoto. Julian, what was their attitude towards their success in the 1960s, their amazing success in the 1960s, and their, the attitude to, the, to their training? As you said, you know, um, the, the coach was something of a father figure. It wouldn't probably be done now that way. But how did you, how did you assess how they looked back on all of that? They look back uh, to this uh, period of their lifetime um, as, um, as the best uh, time of their... Yeah. Uh, they, they were... Everything was so uh, successful for them. And um, as uh, Shinozaki-san, one of the players, said in the film, after her volleyball career, she remembered that everything was so easy. They didn't uh, really uh, quit volleyball. They, they kept playing for years. Mm. And uh, some of them still play. So it's amazing and very uh, relevant that um, their harsh uh, training regime uh, was not so um, traumatic and, 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 and painful. They are still very healthy, so it's very common to uh, see uh, high-level athletes um, quit everything and, and they get in fat, they get in <laughs> lazy after their competitive uh, career. So after their huge success in 1964, they were very popular in, in Japan. And they were also, uh, they missed this um, collective um, experience. So they tried to, to play for fun. There was a TV program in Japan that just set up some games between uh, ancient witches against um, amateur players. And it, this uh, TV show was so successful that it, it helped to develop what uh, Japanese called Mama-san uh, League. It's... Um, for older um, players, not, not only uh, young grown-ups. And it's, it's probably the most uh, wonderful uh, legacy that, um, that happened after the, the witches' success in Japan because uh, before 64, women in Japan, they played volleyball as, um, as teenagers and young grown-ups, but they get married. And after that, they have to stay at home and there were no time and it was not socially accepted that uh, they, they, they keep and they continue to, to play volleyball. But after the, the Mamasan League development, thanks to the witches, because they were very involved in this uh, movement, many, many um, women, and not only mothers, but women um, more than 40, more than 50, more than 60, were suddenly, um, they, they have the possibility, the, the opportunity to play volleyball and those Mamasan League are, are really uh, popular in Japan, and they create uh, Mamasan Mama League in every sport, not only in, on volleyball, but now you have uh, on football, on, on baseball, in every sport. So 
I think it's a huge uh, legacy because it's a, it's a real um, improvement of the social um, habits and, and customs. And uh, this is not uh, usual when a sports team or, or athletes uh, have this power to change the society. And uh, I think we, we really have to, uh, to thank the, the witches for this um, social improvement. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm all for um, the televising of amateur sport only in professional sport. <laughs> professional sport sometimes, sadly, isn't 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 interesting enough um, to to be on the on the television. It sounds like an inspiring thing, the Mamasan League. We will check, definitely check check that out, Julian. And we mentioned this at the beginning of of our conversation. We must address it before we go, and that is the incredible fabric of the film that you've put together. We talked about the mixing of all sorts of different media, and 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 we've got to. Talk talk about the music um you mix sort of operatic arias with some amazing french electronic music as well tell us about the ideas you had for this because that, that it's so wonderful to bear, bearing out the idea of the repetition of the training and and and, and melding in with the, the the sound of the the anime as as well tell us about the world of sound in in witches of the orient so the very first uh, music experience uh, was for um, a sequence of a uh, hard training where I, I just um, make this kind of mashup uh, sequence with uh, a ping pong uh, editing with uh, anime and footage, and they were very much alike. So I, I really uh, play on these um, similarities uh, in terms of uh, frame and image composition. So uh, I needed um, a piece of music to help me to uh, interweave uh, all this um, footage and, and anime. And it was quite a coincidence because when I, while I was working on this uh, editing, the famous Bristol-based uh, band uh, Portishead released their third album. And one of the, the most impressive track of this album was entitled Machine Gun. And because Daimatsu was throwing balls like, uh, <laughs> like bombs, in, in the Portishead um, uh, track, the analog synthesizer just... Um, recreate a, a bombing, a machine gun sounding. So it was like a wink and it was fun to, to, to have a try and to test it. It worked very well, but not only about uh, because of the machine gun sound, because of uh, Bess Gibbons' voice. Really yeah, it's beautiful that, in the film. It's so haunting and, and it feels like it could come from any era, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, really. Um, I found a kind of... Uh, uh, wink uh, and link to uh, uh, between Beth Gibbons and the players because the players were um, and they are very um, introverted and they, they don't like to um, to show off at all. They are Japanese and they are from a, they belong to a, a generation where people don't like to be on a, on in a, on the spotlight. And Beth Gibbons is this kind of um, non super pop star attitude. She's very uh, uh, very simple, very um, introverted. But when she um, when she come to uh, on a stage and and start singing, uh, it's just stunning and and very impressive, very powerful. Although uh, her voice is sometimes uh, seems a bit fragile, um, it's it's very powerful. And it was like for me like the players, uh, and it brings uh, a real emotional dimension and. It works very, very well for me, and I was really um, happy to find this uh, combination. And after that, I think 
party shed track just um, helped me to uh, to show me the the musical direction, and it was the use of uh, analog synthesizer because it brings a dimension of uh, let's say a retro futuristic mm -hmm. dimension, and I think Japan in the sixties uh, was actually a real window to the future with the the first um, um, transistors, uh, small. Uh, the robots in, in the factory, um, uh, in the meals, in the, 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 the fastest train on earth, the skyscrapers, the city lights, everything was very futuristic um, for, for Europeans. Obviously, the 60s are not anymore the future. So uh, analog synthesizer uh, really sounds like the future of, of, of a past uh, era. So I think it, it really matched with my, with my film in my, the period um, I was focusing uh, on. I needed something, uh, someone um, that was gifted and, and to, to make uh, a track that will uh, end properly the film. So I have in mind Jason Little from Granddaddy. When I, when I watched the IOC, the Olympic Com International Committee, uh, footage of the, of the final, the showdown between Japan and the Soviet unions during um, the Olympic final in 1964. And at the very end of the film, Daimatsu's uh, reaction was uh, quite uh, unusual. Uh, he stayed on, seated on this uh, bench, and um, he started crying. It, it was uh, a shame of uh, his crying, so he tried to hide his, uh, his tears. And he was, uh, he was not only happy, he was proud. He was a relief, for sure. But he was not celebrating uh, like, um, like we, are, we are used to. Because he knew that at that time, at this exact uh, time, it was the end. It was the end of a long journey, of a long life uh, with the witches, and it was, uh, it was also a, a little death, we can use that in France. <laughs> so, and, and Jason Litton really mastered this uh, feeling of um, melancholia, of nostalgia. It's not a sad music, it's not a dark, it's not a dark music, it's just melancholic. and. Um, it was the perfect uh, casting for me, Jason Litton, to, uh, to create this masterpiece uh, and, and, and a real song with lyrics, which is uh, very important uh, for me because the music and the lyrics of Jason are very meaningful and help to the, the audience to, um, to feel and taste the, what's happening uh, on, on the image on the screen. Well, it is a it's a beautiful ending to a, a near perfect documentary, Julian. It's a, it's a it's a profoundly moving film, actually, um, and it's got so much richness in it. It's got so many different things going on in it. It's a real um, masterstroke. So, thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you talking talking us through Witches of the Orient. Thank you very much. And Witches of the Orient is in certain cinemas across Europe and North America now and available to stream from most of the usual outlets, of course. Today's show was produced by Holly Fisher and our studio manager was Maylee Evans. But for the time being, from me, Robert Pound, thank you for tuning in. 